Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, Ephesians chapter 6. And we have some Bibles for anybody who needs one. We want you all to have one and see what we're looking at in Ephesians 6. So get these guys' attention, and they'll get a Bible to you that is marked at that very passage. As we continue our series in the book of Ephesians, nearing the end over the next several weeks as we're in the last chapter, but the title of the entire series is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's plan. We'll be looking at Ephesians 6, the end of verse 14 and verse 15 together today. Before we do, I want to say a public thank you to a couple of areas of our ministry today. One, to our security team uh, who put the crime scene tape out and marked off some spots for us to park today, having been given a heads up by the school that they had an event going on today, a fairly large event, and if we don't mark those off, then it's just mayhem. So some of the guys got here at 7 o'clock this morning to mark that off for us. You say, oh, I hate it, that guys had to come at 7 o'clock. Well, there is a way to rectify that, give to our ministry center fund, and then nobody else will be able to use our building. But the other group I wanted to thank is our music folks and the work that they put in to providing uh, worshipful music for us and doing so really without a place to, uh, to practice. Uh, Carol's house is usually where that happens, and uh, there's not a whole lot of room if you've ever been over there. Carol's got her keyboard and then the guys with the guitars and all of that. So that will be another blessing for that area of ministry when they have a place that's large enough for them to have everybody and all of the instruments uh, for them to be able to practice. But in the meantime, thank you for the excellent job that you're doing. Those who know a bit of history will be aware that World War II, which for America began at the end of 1941, but you may know that World War II had begun for Britain a few years prior to that. During those years, Britain had been fighting Germany on their own and doing so in a desperate struggle to keep from happening to them what had happened to other countries like France and several others. Germany had taken over and taken over in fairly easy fashion. And after a few years of struggle, it did not look good for Britain. In fact, it looked so bad that the U.S. ambassador to Britain, Joseph Kennedy, the father of John and Bobby and Ted, he had all but predicted an impending British defeat. But then came December 7 of 1941, the day Pearl Harbor, an American naval base in the Pacific, was attacked by the Japanese. I'm going to read you a long excerpt from the diary of Winston Churchill, then Prime Minister of Britain. He made this entry the night of December 7, 1941, while he was with friends at Checkers. Checkers is the Prime Minister's retreat. And Churchill says this, I turned on my small wireless set shortly after the 9 o'clock news had started. There were a number of items about the fighting on the Russian front and the British front in Libya. And at the end, there was a few sentences being spoken regarding an attack upon American shipping in Hawaii. And then he says, at this point, it's somewhat confused as to uh, what the particular message was. But he goes on to say, I personally did not sustain any direct impression, but Averill, my colleague, 
said that there was something about an attack on Americans, and in spite of being tired and resting, we all sat up. By now, the butler, whose name was Sawyers, if your name is Sawyers, you're destined to be a butler. He had heard what had happened, and he came into the room, and he said, it's, it's quite true. We heard it ourselves outside that the Americans had been attacked. Churchill says, I got up from the table, I walked through the hall to the office, which was always busy, and I asked for a call to the president. In two or three minutes, Mr. Roosevelt came through. Mr. President, what's this about an attack? It's quite true, he replied. They have attacked us at Pearl Harbor. We're all in the same boat now. And then Churchill writes, we went back to the hall and tried to adjust our thoughts to the supreme world event that had just occurred, which was of so startling a nature as to make all of us gasp. And then he goes on to recall his thoughts as he went to bed that night. And he says this, No American will think it wrong of me if I proclaim that to have the United States at our side was to me the greatest joy. We had won after all. Now just remember, this is the night of December 7, 1941, nearly three and a half years before the war would end. Yes, after Dunkirk, after the fall of France, after 17 months of lonely fighting and 19 months of my responsibility alone in dire distress, we had won the war. Britain would live. How long the war would last, or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at that moment care. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead. But there was no doubt about the end. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. And in his last line in his diary for that night, he says this, I went to bed and I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful. We have been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, which tells us after describing all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, to put on the full, the whole armor, but this is important, the whole armor of God. And we're given a description of six indispensable items of a belt and a breastplate and sandals and a shield and a helmet and a sword. And then to that is added a non-clothing item, prayer, and thereby emphasizing the completeness of this outfit for spiritual battle. But this is the armor of God. And all that remains now for you and for me is the proper application of this overwhelming force that comes to us from the hand of Almighty God. We're going to look today at two more of these armaments that God gives us. Let's ask Him to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word gives us all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for the full armor that you have provided for us to live the life to which you have called us. It's a life that is beyond us and is only possible by your mercy and your grace. 
but is absolutely possible because of your mercy and grace. Grant us that grace now as we apply your truth to our lives. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, each of the weapons that are listed in this passage describing these six items of spiritual warfare is something that God gives us, and then in turn, we are required to respond by using that weapon as it was intended. We saw last week from verse 14 that God has given us truth, and that that should affect us in our everyday lives as we demonstrate commitment to the truth as given to us in Scripture, and then in turn engage in truth and honesty in our communications and our interactions. Today we're going to see two other pieces of armor that God provides, and that should have effect on us in our everyday lives. Notice the end of verse 14. Stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Over the years, I've heard this passage mentioned a number of times. And I've heard a few misconceptions given with regard to this breastplate of righteousness. One is to say that the breastplate is the most important item in the weaponry because it covers the front and therefore the vital organs. Well, it's true that a breastplate does cover the front. We'll see it also covers the back as as well. But it's not the most important piece of armor. The reason I say that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, we're told that our breastplate consists of faith and love. And then in this passage, we're going to see in the weeks to come that faith is our shield. And so Paul, who wrote this, his point is not to tell us one piece of armor is more important than the others. Rather, they're all absolutely indispensable. All of them are vital. None of them are optional. And I've heard it preached in the past with regard to this breastplate that the armor of a Roman soldier only covered the front of, of, of of the individual and that there was nothing on the back. But actually, this piece of armor for a Roman soldier was what was called a chain mail that covered the front and the back. But this breastplate, like each of the six pieces in the passage, is essential to our ability to engage in spiritual warfare to which we've been called. God gives it. We respond by using it as He intended. And that's why I say in your outline that was inserted in your program, I encourage you to look there. If we're going to be firm in our place in God's plan, then first of all, we must be right. We must be right. Now when I say we must be right, I'm not referring to being right in our opinions, but rather being right in our relationship with God, which is what righteousness primarily refers to in Scripture. Our being right with God. And God gives us a way to be in right relationship with Him. But the mere fact that God has to do that means that we are not automatically in right relationship with Him. And so we put on this breastplate of righteousness, a righteousness as we're going to see that God provides for us, but I'm telling you that the mere fact that God must provide it means we don't automatically have it. The Bible teaches that we do not come into this world 
right with God. We are not naturally right with God. And in fact, whenever we try to do even right and good things, none of those things recommends us to God or is even pleasing to God outside of the means that He has provided for our righteousness. The Bible says this, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. The Bible goes on to say famously, many of you are familiar with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we are not naturally right with God, not naturally righteous. And further, we cannot make ourselves right. Given this situation that even the good things we do, our righteous acts, are before God, outside of the means that He has provided for right relationship with Him, outside of that, all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Given that situation, what would most people prescribe in order to fix this situation? How would most people suggest we go about rectifying this? How does religion say for us to be righteous, for God to be pleased with us. Well, it is always, is it not? A list of rules that you do your best to keep. And the truth is the difference between the various religions is simply the difference in their particular sets of rules. But at heart, it's all the same thing. Do these things well enough and you'll have a shot at being right with God. Let's put that to the test. God gave a very elaborate list of rules in Scripture, did He not? In the first part of your Bible, it's called the law. Now, most of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, but the law actually consisted of 613 discrete commands and prohibitions. And most of those were simply explanations or practical outworkings of the foundational Ten Commandments. Now, with regard to that law given in the first part of your Bible, here's what Scripture says. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Now, I want you to notice the articles in that verse. If a law, if any law, if there was any list of rules anywhere, any place, any time that could impart life, it certainly would have happened by what's identified as the law, the one that we're all familiar with, the one that God gave in the first part of the Bible. But then the Bible goes on to say this. If righteousness could be gained through the law, the law that God gave through Moses in the first part of the Bible, then Christ died for nothing. Friends, let me just say, as an aside, we are done with the law. Do you understand that? Christ has put an end to the law, as we are going to see. And I warn you, do not dabble. Do not dabble in any way, shape, or form with forms of the law that put us under bondage to any aspect of it again. The Bible warns over and over again of that error. 
And yet there have been people who have attended this church, if you can believe that, who left this church because we don't preach the law properly. And to that I say thanks be to God. Because this will always be a church that preaches the gospel of grace, which is antithetical to the law, as we will see. Why did God give it that? If we are not under the law, if the law could not make anyone righteous, then what was God's purpose in giving it? The Bible tells us. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. And so if I can't achieve righteousness before God by keeping rules, even this best list of rules, then what hope is there for me? Since I am not righteous and I can't make myself right, then what is it that I need in order to have this piece of armor called the breastplate of righteousness? What I need, friends, is a righteousness that comes from someone else. A righteousness that comes from outside of me. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if there was a righteousness that I could have and you could have that you don't have to attain because you can't manufacture it, but someone else provides it for you. And that's what the gospel teaches us, that very thing. How do I know this? The book of Romans is a long and very explicit explanation of a righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves. And I'd like us to take some time to look at a number of passages that show that very thing. So I encourage you to hold your finger here at Ephesians 6 and then turn back a number of pages. If you're not familiar with the layout of your Bible, you'll just turn back a few pages toward the front. Sorry to confuse you. Go to the left. Okay. And you'll find Romans. Romans chapter 1. And verses 16 and 17 give the theme of the entire 16 chapters of the book of Romans. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to everyone who believes. For in it, in the gospel, is revealed, now notice, a righteousness from God. This entire 16 chapters now is going to be about the solution to the problem. The problem is, I need righteousness, but I can't manufacture it because I'm not right. Because I've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so now here's the solution. A righteousness from outside of myself that's provided by another. A righteousness from God that's called the good news, the gospel. Now why is this good news needed? Because the bad news is bad indeed. Verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is being revealed against all the ungodliness of men who suppress, hold down the truth by their unrighteousness. So why is a righteousness needed that's outside of us? Because God's wrath, God's anger abides on all who have sinned against Him. That includes every one of us as we'll be reminded in a bit. 
And that sad chronicle goes on for two and a half chapters. All the way through the end of chapter 1. Through the entirety of chapter 2. Through the beginning of chapter 3. And then you come to verses 9 and 10 of Romans chapter 3. And a question is asked. Well, what do we say then? What shall we conclude? (laughs) And then goes on to say that all of us have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike. They're all in the same condition. There is no one good. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. Not even one. There is no one who understands. And it goes on to give this catalog of the depth of sin that applies to every last one of us. And then it summarizes in verse 23 saying, And so, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, then where is the law in all of this? Given this condition, and given that I need a righteousness from outside of myself, how does the law apply to this? Verse 20. Friends, doesn't verse 20 say that no one will be justified by the law? Doesn't it say that? No one will be right before God. No one will have righteousness before God by virtue of the law. And so sin is this deep. Sin is this pervasive. I can't manufacture the righteousness myself. Obeying the law will not do it. Because no one can do it. So what's the solution? Verse 21 of Romans 3 takes you all the way back to the theme verse of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. But now a righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, verse 22, is by faith in Christ Jesus. It goes on to tell us that he has become the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement, the NIV says in verse 25 for our sins, satisfying the righteous anger of God, and hear this, friends, providing for you and me the righteousness that we so desperately need. Where does this righteousness come from? It comes through Jesus Christ in His absolutely righteous life, His sacrificial death on the cross for your sin. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself, which is absolutely necessary because you have no righteousness of your own. Christ has provided it. How do I obtain it? Verse 22 says it's by faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 and verse 3 says this. That even in the first part of your Bible, no one was ever justified by the law. Abraham lived before the law. And he's used as an illustration in chapter 4. Abraham did this. Abraham believed God. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know when you see the word faith or the word believe in your New Testament, those are the same Greek word. Abraham had faith in God. 
Chapter 3 and verse 22 says this righteousness that's from God comes by faith, by believing in Christ Jesus. Now chapter 4 illustrates that by Abraham having faith in God, in God's promise, believing God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How do I get this righteousness? How can I be right before God? I need it from outside of myself, from someone else who is righteous because I am not. How do I obtain it? By believing in what God has said about who I am, who Christ is, and what He has done for me. Religion tells you you're right with God when you do what the religion says must be done. And Paul, who wrote this, came from a long line of very strictly religious people who meticulously sought to keep the religious rules. And here's what he says about them. His own countrymen, the Israelites, in chapter 10. Will you look at chapter 10 of Romans? Verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, his own countrymen, is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of your own attempts, friends, to be right with God. Christ is the end of our pride in our own goodness. Christ is the end of your uncertainty about your relationship with God. Christ is the end of your search, and He is all you need. Paul himself had a long and impressive religious resume. But here's what he said about that resume. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider all of my accomplishments in the past, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now some of you came into this room thinking you were going to a religious ceremony. But this is, this is not a religious place in the sense that I've described. Keep the rules, whatever the rules are, so that you can please God 
and thus have a relationship with him. Uh Uh-uh. This is a place where we preach Christ, whereas we sang, show us Christ. And Christ is your righteousness. And he is your only hope for a relationship with God so that you can own that breastplate now in your everyday life. And for some of you, you have never heard the gospel of God's grace, perhaps until now. I'm going to stop in the midst of this message. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to the righteousness that comes from God and give you a chance to receive by faith what he offers. For those of us that have done that in the past, we're going to bow. We're going to thank our God for his grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. For those of you that have never come to God through Jesus Christ, you can do that in this very moment. Did you know that? I read for you Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Verse 13 says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I'm urging you, friends, to call on the name of the Lord, and the Lord is Jesus Christ. And he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He died on the cross and paid the infinite penalty for your sin. He lived an absolutely perfect life. He, in fact, kept the law. (laughs) And he applies his sacrificial death and his absolutely perfect life to you when you call on him, believing, faith, who you are, a sinner outside of God. And who he is, God the Son, who has done for you what you could not do for yourself. As we bow from your heart to God, call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that God the Son was willing to leave the glories of heaven, to walk the dusty roads of Palestine, to endure the insults, to endure the nails, to endure the spear, to endure this heinous death on a cross as a criminal. Though he had no sin, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we thank you profoundly for the Lord Jesus. Those of us on whose hearts you have moved at a point in time in the past when we heard the glorious gospel of the righteousness that comes from God, those of us who have received that gift, we thank you for the profound difference that's made in our lives. And Lord, for any who have come into this room, maybe they never heard the gospel, Maybe all they've known is a distortion of your truth through religion. I pray that right now this is revolutionary for them. From your word, they are seeing that it's not about what they do, it's about what Jesus has done. And that your spirit is moving upon their hearts, drawing them to yourself, causing them to see what they were once blind to. We pray that you would draw them to yourselves and do in them what you are doing in us. From the inside out, by the work of your Holy Spirit, conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name, and we will give him alone the glory. Amen.
I'm going to take this piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness, then first of all, I have to be right. I have to be right with God. But how am I right with God? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to be right with God. But then secondly, in your outline, I have to, I must live right. I must be right. And then now, because I have this relationship with God through the work, person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I must live right. Now notice, I don't live right in order to have a relationship with God. I live right because I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now some, in fact many, take the approach that says, well, I can't keep God's rules. Jesus did it for me, so I really shouldn't sweat it, right? But the Bible teaches, in the book of Romans, as a matter of fact, and elsewhere, that if I've come to God through Jesus by believing who I am as a sinner and who He is as God the Son, living and dying for me, when I do that, I am, the Bible uses this language, united with Christ in His death and His life. That is, I am vitally linked to Jesus Christ. And so think of it this way. If this is the way Jesus lived, because I am vitally linked to Jesus, then this is now how I'm called to live. Because Jesus lived that way, He empowers me now to do the same. Outside of the empowering that He gives, I can do nothing that God says to do. But thanks be to God, He gives that power to those who come to Him by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Romans tells us this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. It says that those who are now the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And it goes on to tell us that the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, now has a special relationship with us such that He leads us into the kind of living that is pleasing to God and displays the character of God, conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 7, Paul, again, who wrote that letter as well as Ephesians, laments the fact that in his own life, he doesn't do the things that he knows he ought to do, even the things that he wants to do. He's recognizing that even after having come to Jesus, he still struggles with sin. And so in the last part of verse 7, many of you have read this, or chapter 7 of Romans, many of you have read this, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I ought not to do, those are the very things that I do. And then he says this, who shall deliver me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? And then in verse 25 of Romans 7, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he lifts his countenance, as it were, from loathing about his own sin. And we come to chapter 8, and the very first verse of Romans chapter 8 is this, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He gives us the desire, and he gives us then the power to do what he commands of us. What I have from God now is to issue forth through me in the life that Jesus now lives in me. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, you might jot this down, 1 John 2, 
verses 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. Now notice, we obey His commands because we have come to know Him. We don't obey His commands in order to know Him. We come to know Him through faith in Christ Jesus, and then we have a desire and He empowers us to obey His commands. The man who says, John goes on to say, I know Him but does not do what He commands is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But if anyone obeys His word, God's love is truly made complete in Him. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. You say, dude, it was good news until you said that. Because I know I don't walk as Jesus did. Listen, I don't walk as Jesus did. You don't walk as Jesus did. And anyone who, anyone who claims that they have no sin, John, John who wrote the words I just read, John also wrote these words. Chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we lie. And the truth is not in us. We, this side of heaven, until we die or Jesus takes us home or, or returns for us, we will all struggle with sin. But we have an advocate with the Father, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. God has provided the breastplate of righteousness. And verse 15 tells us, that not only now are we to have this breastplate of righteousness, but we're to stand firm, notice verse 15, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And so this is a second piece of armor. Now I have two major points in your outline that I am not going to be able to cover in our time together. And I'm very glad that I did not hear an amen to that. But I will begin this, and then we will pick it up there next week. But here's now a second piece of armor in today's passage, a third piece of armor overall. We have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. And now we have these sandals, these shoes, protective footwear that a Roman soldier would wear in order to help him stand in the day of battle. These sandals had spikes on the bottom of them, nails, so that he could stand firm. Very often battle in that day was hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot. Standing firm meant having shoes that would allow you that stability. It's similar to athletic wear for football or for, for baseball with spikes on the bottom so that your feet do not, do not slip. Now, when we think of the gospel of peace and feet that have the readiness, verse 15 says, the readiness of the gospel of peace, we think of that as one who is ready to share the gospel and ready to run to share the gospel and to spread it far and wide. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that we are in this battle and part of the armor for our battle includes protection for our feet and also stability for the fight. I'm protected by the good news. It says the gospel of peace, as it's called in verse 15. Now, just as with righteousness, we must do these two things. I'll let you fill them in, and then I'll explain them next week. We must be at peace, and we must live at peace. 
And I hope you'll be able to be with us next week so that we can look at what the Bible says about the peace that we have with God. The peace that as a result of that we can have with one another. And the peace of God that he provides that transcends all understanding. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look at these profound truths in your word. I pray that those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ because of his grace given to us will leave this place profoundly thankful once again for the beauty of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who came here not knowing the Lord Jesus, I pray that they do now. That when we bowed our heads and our hearts before you, that they cried out to you in their own words, acknowledging that they are a sinner apart from you, that they have broken your law, that they have no hope at a relationship with you apart from what you have provided in the God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray if anyone has not done that before this day is out, you will grant them mercy, give them breath, so that they will come to you through the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.